A 737 crashes miles from the Pittsburgh International Airport. How is this flight very similar to a flight that happened years before, and how did this investigation stall and leave investigators stumped? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, for episode 14. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we still have Emily with us. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so today we continue the saga, and I'm sure you're excited to figure out what's going on with the, myster- the mystery that was UA-585. So today we're talking about US Air 427, which occurred about two years after the report was released for UA-585 that occurred on September the 8th of 1994. This was on a Boeing 737-300. Ooh. It was a little bit newer version than UA-585 with the different engines. It was on tail number November 513 Alpha Uniform. This flight was scheduled from Chicago O'Hare to Pittsburgh. The captain on this flight was Peter Germano. He was 45 years old, and he was the pilot monitoring in this case. He had approximately 12,000 hours total, of which 3,269 hours were on the 737. The first officer was Chuck Emmett. He was 38 years old, and he was the pilot flying. He had 9,119 hours total, with 3,644 hours on the 737. The flight departed the gate at O'Hare at 6.02 p.m. local time. Takeoff was at 6.10 p.m., with an estimated flight time of 55 minutes as it was filed on their flight plan. And the majority of the flight went as normal. Weather in Pittsburgh was calm as they approached. Air traffic control sequenced a Delta 727 ahead of Flight 427 for the approach to Pittsburgh. The air traffic controller instructed both flights to descend to 10,000 feet. At 6.53 and 15 seconds, a flight attendant entered the cockpit of Flight 427 to request connecting flight and gate information and asked if the pilots wanted anything to drink. At this point, they're still above 10,000 feet, so there's no conflict of interest there. They're allowed to be there. It is not a sterile cockpit. It is not a sterile cockpit, and this is before 9-11 and a lot of other incidents that caused there to be a secure cockpit situation during all portions of the flight. So the flight attendant was able to come and go, basically, as they pleased. At 6.54 and 2 seconds, the flight attendant leaves the cockpit, and simultaneously, air traffic control instructs the flight to reduce their speed to 250 knots. The Delta ahead of them had an assigned speed of 210 knots at the time and a heading of 160. So you're thinking of a compass, 360 being dead north, 90 being dead east, uh, 180 being dead south, and 270 being dead west. So 160 puts you south, southeast on a heading. Air traffic control then instructed the flight US Air 427 reduce speed to 210 knots That's at the request of Pittsburgh Approach, which was the air traffic controller that was in contact with the 727 ahead of them. So basically they were trying to get the airplane to match the speed of the airplane ahead of them and not overtake them. 11 seconds later, the controller told 427 that they did not have to make the instructed crossing at an intersection that they were originally told to cross. And, quote, just uh, speed first, pilot's discretion to 10. So in other words, what what he told 427 to do is originally they were supposed to go to an intersection, but he was so worried about them getting too close to the 727 
that instead of getting to that intersection at a certain altitude, at 10,000 feet, like they'd been instructed, they he told them, get to 10,000 feet whenever you get there, just slow down first. That's primary, so that they don't overtake the 727. The flight was then instructed to contact the approach frequency that the 727 was on. At 6.57 and 7 seconds, the flight attendant returned to the cockpit delivering the drinks. The approach controller then instructed the flight to turn right to a heading of 160 and advised them that they were going to get vector instructions for 28 right at Pittsburgh. This is a 28 right and 28 left. At 6.58 and 3 seconds, the Delta was instructed to descend to 6,000. At 6.58 and 24 seconds, an altitude warning sounded in the cockpit to alert the flight crew that they were 1,000 feet from their assigned altitude of 10,000 feet, as well as 1,000 feet from the sterile cockpit rule. At that time, the flight attendant that was in the cockpit then stated, okay, back to work, and left the cockpit. So, per procedures, they left to do their job. At 6.58 and 33 seconds, so only a handful of seconds later, the controller instructed 427 to descend to 6,000 feet as well, right behind the 727. At 7.00, and six seconds, the controller instructed the 727 to turn left to 130 and reduce speed to 190 knots. So now the 737's closing on him again. At 7 and 14 seconds, the controller assigned 427 a heading of 140 degrees and 190 knots, so now reducing them to the same speed. At 7 and 44 seconds, the controller assigned the 727 to turn to 100, so keep turning left, 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 more left turns for both airplanes. At 7.01 and 2 seconds, 4.27 asks for clarification of runway 28 left or 28 right. The controller then instructs them that they are going to 28 right. At 7.02 and 22 seconds, the, con- the controller instructed 4.27 to turn to 100, so now the same heading as the 7.27. And traffic will be at your 1 to 2 o'clock and 6 miles northbound, a jet stream, so now another airplane. is an airplane called a jet stream, climbing out of 3,300 feet for 5,000 feet. The pilots stated that they were looking for this traffic. As the airplane came out of its turn at at 100 degrees, at an altitude of 6,000 feet, and a speed of 190 knots, the first officer stated, Oh yeah, I see the jet stream. He said that's what it says in the report, and that is what he actually said. He was just doing it to be funny. He was doing it to be funny. That was at 7.02 and 54 seconds. At 7.02 and 57 seconds, three bumps are heard on in one second, and the captain says, she's. Thumps happen between the she's and the z, so both of them are talking simultaneously, and the bumps are heard between 7.02 and 57 seconds and a half, and 7.02 and 57.6 seconds. So 0.1 of a second is where this thudding happens and both pilots are talking simultaneously. Between 7.02 and 57 seconds and 7.02 and 58 seconds, 427's speed increased about 3 knots, but it took 4 seconds for it to decrease back down. Between 7.02 and 57 seconds and 7.02 and 59 seconds, the left bank angle increased from less than 8 degrees to 20 degrees. So in 2 seconds, they basically went went 12 degrees to the left, which a normal bank rate is less than 5 degrees per second. So that was pretty fast. At 7.02 and 58 seconds, another thump and two clickety-click sounds happen, followed by the sound of the engine thrust increasing, and the control column was briefly moved. At 7.02 and 59 seconds, the roll was corrected, and the plane began to roll 
back to wings level, but only to about 15 degrees left bank instead of all the way to level. At 7.02 and 59.4 seconds, the captain stated, whoa, and at 7.02 and 59.7 seconds, the first officer grunts. During this time, the airplane's left acceleration, so their roll to the left, increases rapidly and the plane passes an assigned heading of 100 and continues turning left. At 7.03, the plane rolled rapidly back to the left and the stick shaker activated, indicating an accelerated stall. So the airplane, an accelerated stall is different than a aerodynamic stall. So an aerodynamic stall, the airplane just loses, you know, if you're pulling the nose up and up and up and you're not gaining any speed, you lose all that speed, then you're also losing lift. Like what happened in Colganair. What happened in Colganair. They lost lift. In this case, this is completely different. The airplane is actually, has enough speed, but they've put the airplane into a situation where it's rolling and turning left really heavily, and the air isn't going over the wings. The air is now attacking the airplane at the bottom, so it doesn't have any lift all of a sudden. It's doing what's called an accelerated stall. The airplane still has speed, but none of it is over the wings. So it begins to fall while continuing in the same direction at speed. The first officer is then heard grunting loudly and making exclamatory remarks. At 7.03 and 7.5 seconds, the sound of a stall buffet can be heard between the captain saying, What the hell is this? Then one second later, the terrain alert horn sounded and the traffic alert system began alerting them traffic, traffic in the cockpit. And all of this, the stick shaker, the buffeting sound, and a terrain alert and the traffic alert began just continued sounding until the end of the flight, which was only about 20 seconds. They were hi- they were higher up than UA-585, so they were longer. higher. Yeah, they had f- over 4,000 feet to drop. The controller noticed that the flight had dropped below 6,000 feet. They were about 5,300 feet, and the controller instructed them to hold 6,000 feet because they thought they just missed it. At which time the flight crew then came back over the transmission and said, 427 emergency... That was at 7.03 and 14 seconds. They continued rolling left inverted. One of the flight crew intermittently pressed the push to talk button between 7.03 and 8 seconds and 7.03 and 22 seconds, allowing air traffic control to hear most of the emergency up to the point of impact. Apparently there's an air traffic control recording somewhere with almost their entire emergency on it. They impacted a, a woody hill area six miles away from Pittsburgh Airport. There were no survivors, all perished. It was 132 passengers. Which is way more than than UA-585. And it was, the airplane disintegrated on impact. Because there were so many passengers and so many people in this, it was one of the first times the NTSB considered it to be a biohazard to investigate. Because so many people had basically disintegrated there and it was unfortunate but they had to wear biohazard suits hazmat suits hazmat suits which became a big problem at the time of the impact the aircraft was valued at 30 million dollars no structures on the ground were damaged but some trees and some grass were scorched does this all sound familiar i mean so do most crash sites yep there was only very very few bits and pieces of this airplane left really even fewer than ua 585 and Investigators had a very hard time finding pieces of this airplane and determining what happened where. That said, they were able to find the black boxes. Again. 
the way so black boxes we talked about this with chris Mm -hmm. you would think that they would be behind the cockpit no they're in the tail they're in the tail because most planes that i know of dive head first dive head first when they crash (laughs) they go in nose first most airplanes don't go tail first into things yeah that'd be really weird it would most you would have like a weight (laughs) weight balance issue there's that, and there's just, yeah, it would just be, it'd be a mess. For it to crash backward. Anyway, so they are meant to withstand high forces of damage. High temperatures. And underwater scenarios. Scenarios. So yep. it doesn't surprise me, like I said in the last episode, that they found the black boxes. Um, oh, I but- forgot to mention in the last episode, the FDR was fine. The CVR had crinkles in it. Yeah. yeah. But they still managed to get all the data. Yeah. In this case, I don't know, but this was freaking dramatic. I mean, they managed to obviously recover data because you heard I'm giving you point whatever seconds. That can't be done unless they have a recording that tells them exactly. Yep. And there's actually a graph included in the report for this one in the middle of the story, which there's never anything in the middle of the story. It's usually just a few pages of what happened. And then they move on to everything else. But in this case, they actually included the CVR data and the FDR data as one whole graph. And it's one whole page in the middle of the story. It was like a six-page story with all these details. And we have that on our website. And I've managed to narrow it down to the stuff that's really important. But, I mean, this this was crazy. It's hard to imagine those 20 seconds were absolutely hectic in the cockpit. They suddenly go through a few bumps and then the airplane began to roll left on them and then they start getting all these alarms then they're inverted air traffic control is trying to talk to them they're trying to talk back and control the airplane and 20 seconds of just pure terror plummeting over 4,000 feet rough yeah i mean it was this one was probably one of the more dramatic ones i think i've ever read or seen so where i think this is interesting because it's it's obvious where they're trying to lead with the report, which is that they talk about the Delta flight for probably two-thirds of the whole story, which is crazy. They talk about that Delta, and every time the Delta was contacted, too, the 727 that was ahead of them, and every time they were given a turn, and every time they were given a frequency change, it tells us everything about that 727's contact with air traffic control as well, and what it was doing. And then there's this third airplane that comes in called a jet stream, which actually I found interesting because when we watched the episode, they don't make this clear. And I don't think, I think it's because they didn't understand either when they read the report, but, and I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just going off this, but the jet stream, when, when you hear the first officers say, I seize a jet stream in the episode, they actually depicted a jet stream in front of them. Like the condensation. Yeah. Like the, the condensation. Yeah. But that's not actually what happened. They actually saw an airplane called the jet stream that was ascending ahead and to their right. Now, at the same time, they did fly through a bunch of bumps. Well, what was happening was, and they don't explain this very well in the report either, but all those instructions they were giving to the Delta were vectors for lining up for 2-8 left, which comes before 2-8 right when you're making left turns. It makes like a backwards F if you line both airplanes up. So they were close together behind one another. But then that 727 made a turn earlier than the 737. And the 737 then had to fly through the the perpendicular wake turbulence turbulence of the 727. And that's actually what happened while they were on their way to 2-8 right. 
So, fun fact, wake turbulence is the turbulence that comes off the wings of the aircraft. They're and like little vortices of air. Exactly. Um, which is why uh, air traffic control is so important, because planes have to be a certain distance away from each other, so that that doesn't affect the planes. Um, there is a crash that we watched an Air Disasters episode on that hit wake turbulence and crashed. We're covering it in the future. Yes. Um, anyway, so those of you who may not know what that is, that's what that is. So they hit the wake turbulence, the vortices of air that came off the 727, which were the bumps, I'm assuming, that yes. they heard. But they were at an appropriate distance away from each other. Air traffic controller that's was... probably just normal, going you, through the wake turbulence like yeah. that, yeah. And you can hear through that whole thing that I read where they were adjusting both of their speeds one at a time to make sure that one wasn't overtaking the other. And making sure that they're keeping that distance. So, in all of that, there's a lot to process for them. And they suddenly go through this wake turbulence, and then the airplane simultaneously begins to roll left and do all these maneuvers they didn't intend for it to do. It's just, it's, it's, it's hard to explain how overwhelmed they probably were by all of this in a matter of 30 seconds mm -hmm. total. Well, but. and it's also weird that air disasters, and I'm assuming Mayday, yes. depicted it the way they did because that's not what happened. Right. And it's not really, I mean, it's not really not what happened, but they didn't, I feel like they, they didn't, didn't do... They didn't physically see a jet stream, like, condensation from the no. 727. No, at that altitude, they shouldn't have, especially on a clear day either. They were looking for an airplane called the jet stream, and I feel like that was not very clear at all. And it's also not very clear that the 727 that was ahead of them turned and that they were flying then through the wake turbulence and yeah, that they, they weren't just behind that plane they had to fly through the wake turbulence perpendicularly to right. get to where they needed to turn to land on the other runway right so this is all very very confusing and it really is i mean unless you were there it would just be hard to depict how fast everything happened and how strange and overwhelming this situation would have been and I hope we're doing a decent enough job explaining it using only audio. It's hard to explain some of the things we discuss without visuals. I'll so. try to find a visual yeah, but of the also, flight path yeah, to kind of help. There's also not very many visuals, period. I mean, yeah, the episode didn't depict where it was in relation to anything nope. at any point in time. And yeah, it just, it was it's strange. I don't and know. Usually it's they're pretty thing. good about that. Yeah. Maybe they just didn't realize what was happening. Yeah. You know, they didn't, from a report, if you've ever read an NTSB report, it's very dry, dry yeah. material. It's not this one, super exciting. We're, well, the weird, we're the weirdos that read it in our free time. This well, one was 370 pages. They assume a certain amount of, like, background knowledge, probably, in writing those of, like... Yeah, they, they you do know to what, some extent. You know what those bumps are if you're a pilot or... It, they probably said it was wake turbulence, though. Nope. They didn't? Nope. Oh, well. The way I read it to you is exactly how they described it. It was wake turbulence. Bump, yeah. bump, bump. They just said there were three thumps heard. Yeah. All of this after giving the instructions of the Delta to turn. Like, literally, they wrote out this whole thing about the Delta, and you, you're thinking the whole time, why is this relevant? Because two-thirds of the story up to that point is just talking about the Delta and and them and how both of them are communicating with air traffic control and the different speeds and headings and everything. And you go, why is this other airplane even relevant? And then you get to the part where 
you hear that both of them have been given instructions now to turn at different times, and the 737 then goes thump, thump, <laughs> and begins doing something not normal. Yep. Yeah, so what's similar, um, connecting UA-585 and this flight, is they encountered an increasingly large amount of wind here in Colorado, and because of that... Or what they thought, right, could have been part of it was the fact that they flew into this ridiculous amount of wind and something happened. Mm -hmm. Well, here they flew into wake turbulence, which is also vortices of air, mm -hmm. and they heard thumps and something happened. Yep. So they they probably figured out from there, and I, I get I pro will probably go over this later, I'm sure, yes. but um, they probably the investigators probably figured out from there. It's a similar thing, but they... There were some differences, and I will get into that. Yeah. yeah. This one really just... The plot thickens. This one got really... The mystery just became even more strange. Because of so many different variables. I don't know, Emily. What... what was this confusing? Are well, you completely confused? Listening to the initial description, yes. Because it was like... Because <laughs> it almost makes it sound like... With how much they go into the two planes, it's like, oh, they're going to crash into each other. Like from I know, a like really would think so. listener standpoint, you're like, oh, it's going to... But it could have also been the fact that pointing those specifics out lets you know that it wasn't necessarily an air traffic control issue so much as like the wind, maybe, or like identifying that. I don't know. Right. The two well, airplanes were spaced too close, perhaps, is their intention, I think. Or... They think that may have been part of it, but even if they were spaced farther apart, there still might have been wake turbulence they would have had to fly through right? to but, get to the turn that they had to take. But yeah, definitely like putting it as the, they just heard thump thump. That makes it sound way more ominous than just like what you would normally, like something that would normally be expected yeah. for two planes that are going through each other's path. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This was bizarre, but... Definitely makes the mystery mystery even crazier. And I'll get into the investigation. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right. So the first chunk of the NTSB investigation analysis in the report discusses a lot of what got debunked. Like, that was a lot of the report. All the doors were closed and locked, so there wasn't a depressurization. They compared the FDR data to a couple of incidents, including Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. That's uh, one that got blown up by a bomb. Yep. And they concluded that there wasn't a fire, bomb, or explosion in the air. I thought it was weird that they specifically mentioned Lockerbie, but whatever. There was no evidence of metal fatigue or corrosion. And once again, the relatively small crash site, along with witness statements, indicate that the plane was intact before impact. Examination of the wreckage, the black boxes, and the air traffic control data showed no sign of a mid-air collision or bird strike. There was one big difference between this crash and UA-585, and that was the sky's were friendly. 
no mount there were no mountain waves or rotors or excessive wind in that regard. They were going into somewhere that didn't have mountains. Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah Pittsburgh. So no, <laughs> there it's not like over here we have the Rockies, right? Yeah. They don't have that over there. So also they rolled left instead of right, but that was kind of a minor detail. The similar the similarities were stark and obvious. Upon analysis of the flight data recorder, or the FDR, investigators discovered that a rudder hardover, or a rudder maxing out its movement in one direction, had occurred for a full 20 seconds. It had started right after the plane experienced some bumps with, from the wake of the 727, assumedly, and it was about four miles behind. And the bumps had audibly startled both pilots as their surprise was heard over the cockpit voice recorder, or the CVR. Loss of control began three to four seconds after the bumps, and the first officer had stepped on the rudder and held it down as the plane plummeted, trying his hardest to reverse the hardover to the left by pushing the plane to the right. And he was doing so, so much that he was audibly grunting with how much effort he was exerting. So, just to to clarify, he was pressing the right rudder pedal to turn the rudder to the right so that it wouldn't go to the left. Was that right? That's yes. probably not right. Yeah. So yes. he was trying to make it because they were going left. He was trying to make sure that the plane flipped back over to the right. But And he held it down pretty hard. But the plane kept going to the left, eventually inverted and crashed into the ground. So he was doing his darndest. The NTSB then investigated all of the following potential causes. Quote, 1. Asymmetric engine thrust reverser deployment. 2. Asymmetric spoiler and aileron activation. 3. Transient electronic signals causing uncommanded flight control movements. 4. Yaw damper malfunctions. And 5. A rudder cable break or pull. End quote. All of these were nixed and ruled out as potentials. The thrust reversers were stowed at impact. Simulators ruled out spoiler and aileron extensions, as they wouldn't have produced that quick of a heading change. Weird electronic signals like electromagnetic interference or similar kinds of interference could have potentially affected the autopilot, rudder trip, or the yaw damper but the pilots could have just disengaged the autopilot and it would have stopped. Which, Which the they auto, did. The autopilot did disengage in the middle of that craziness. So it wasn't that. Because whenever there's a ridiculous amount of stimulation that's not the plane's not used to, mm-hmm. the autopilot automatically disconnects and turns off. Fun fact. I think we talked about it in a different episode where... Yeah, a lot of airplanes do that. In this case, I'm actually not sure if this airplane did or not, but I think I think it might have. Actually. They disengaged it. Did they disengage The it? pilots disengaged yeah. it. Okay. I know that it said in the in the story that there was an autopilot disengage horn heard in the middle of all that chaos. They disengaged it. I don't know which of them did, but one of them did. A yaw damper couldn't have done this because it's limited to plus or minus three degrees, which is way less than the recorded yaw values. Wasn't that. And a cable snap would have made a loud bang. And that was not recorded on the CVR. Right. And it also would have caused rudder deflections up to 5 degrees, which still isn't enough. Yep. Boeing and NTSB both ran simulations that showed that the only circumstance that could replicate what was recorded on the flight data recorder was if the rudder reached its left aerodynamic blowdown limit, or basically just went as far as it could. And this only could have happened either by the flight crew, which we already know didn't happen, or a problem with the rudder system mechanically. They suspected, just as they had with UA-585, that the rudder's power control unit, or PCU, and its dual servo valve were to blame. But once again, they took it to Parker Hannafin, and there were metal chips in the... Hydraulic fluid. Hydraulic fluid. And no scratches. So the servo valve didn't jam. So once again, investigators were at a loss. 
they could not figure out what was going on. So this was a very, very similar situation to UA-585. Yeah. And they knew that, but they didn't know what happened in 585 either. So they couldn't figure out on this one what happened. They couldn't they couldn't be they couldn't decisively figure out what was going on because he was pressing the right rudder pedal and the rudder should have gone to the right, but it never did. It went full left. So there we are. So this also was unsolved for a period of time. Yep. And they began again blaming Maybe the pilots flew it into the ground on purpose. Maybe there was a bomb. Maybe there were so many different things. I mean, people really started to create conspiracies around this flight and UA-585 about, like, whoa, is the government messing with it, man? Is it doing that's weird things? That's what the EMF like, interference. I was like, yeah, that's a stretch. Yeah, they really, like... They, they, had, <laughs> they couldn't think of any... You know, they were like, but let's the, just try it to see if it happens. The craziest thing is that both reports call it out and they call out the fact that they investigated it because so many people were making these crazy claims about it. And so many people were so like they weren't going to let anything go because they had no idea what was going on. Literally almost the entire analysis was we tried this and it didn't work. We thought it was this. Nope, wasn't that. We debunked this and that and this and that. Yeah. We have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it just gets crazier and crazier. I mean, there's so many more mysteries that I think came out of this one even than UA-585. UA-585, yes, it was so strange. But there was still, like, this factor of really high winds that was kind of like, well, yeah, that really could have maybe been it. Wake turbulence and 4,000 feet, that's totally recoverable. In a normal situation, there's no reason that should cause the 737 to hit the ground, if lose 4,000 feet. If the, the rudder had acted like it was supposed to and gone to the right, they could have recovered. But it didn't. It stayed to the left, and it ended up inverting the plane and crashing it into the ground. That said, this is still a mystery because they can't find anything wrong. Yeah. Nothing. They've had it tested. They had the PCU tested twice. And yep. it worked perfectly fine. They literally, in the episode, the Air Disasters episode, they hook it up to a, a hydraulic system to see if it'll work. And yep. it works. Both times, the the rudder PCU unit worked. But they couldn't figure out where the metal shards came from, and they couldn't figure out why... Th there was it, no reason it wouldn't work. It didn't jam, so why wouldn't the rudder unhard over? Why wouldn't it come back from its limit? Right. But well, you don't get to find out. Today. Sorry. Bum, bum, Yet again. Bum. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger. Yet again. 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 <laughs> Till next week. And this time, Emily has to wait a week. Dun, dun, <laughs> Just dun. like the rest of you. And I promise that next week you will actually find out what is going on. Because and this really go, was... Oh, that makes sense. But next week you will also find out why this was so infuriating to investigators. Because... Even after what you learned next week, it took them even longer to figure it out. Yeah. It took them, to to be perfectly honest, it took them about a decade to figure out fully what had happened for 585 that also happened on this flight that also will happen on next week's flight. So to kind of go on a slight tangent, mostly to extend this episode a little bit so we're not jipping you completely, um, this... What's going on right now with the Max is not the first time the 737 has had problems. Obviously. At least this time, they know what happened. True. Yep. 
Last time it took him ten years. Well, it's hard to figure to, out what was going on. It's hard to investigate when you are left with minimal playing. Yes. Well, and I mean, but they were this time too. Well, and minimal causes. They debunked most of the causes that they tried, and so they were like, "What else do we have? We have these two things." And that they can't work either, apparently. So what are we supposed to do? There's nothing we can do. My point is, this is not the first or probably the last time that Boeing has had a problem with a plane. And everyone freaks out. Is this the end, particularly, of the 737? <laughs> no, it's not. They fix it, they get it back in the air, and everything's fine. The same thing happened to the DC-10. Yep. The same thing is happening to the 777 and the 787. Um, Airbus has been having issues with their A321. Yep, they managed to fix that pretty quick, but still an issue. But it, it's not, like, out of the ordinary for these things to happen. It's not. Boeing will probably recover. It sucks that people have to die, and, and people, you know, people die, um, to have it... <laughs> Be an issue, but the only reason they figure out there's an issue is if a plane, if a plane has an emergency and it lands, the NTSB still has to figure out what what happened. Just like with Lot 16. Yeah, like if something happens and a plane lands in an emergency, the NTS in the United States or if, other investigating authorities around right, the world, and, uh, around the world, they have to figure out what happened. They have to figure out if it's a mechanical issue, if it's a pilot issue. To make sure it doesn't happen again. And they make regulations and checklists and things like that so that it doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, here, a lot of people had to die in order for... The 737 to eventually be mostly successful. Yes. And that's what's happening again. And, I mean, every time one of these major things happens where a multiple incident occurrence is happening and they ground everything... Which, they didn't ground everything in this that we're talking about with US Air and UA-585 and all those. Because they were spaced so far apart. These were so far apart, and they didn't really, even in the investigation for US Air 427, they didn't have quite enough to connect dots to both to say that this is worth grounding because, again, the 737 is still, at the time, even the most used airplane on Earth, and they had been working for since the 60s. Yeah, so here, and forgive me if I'm wrong, maybe I am, if they were to have ground the 737, it would have been every 737, right? Yes, unfortunately, at the time, it would have yeah, been. Yeah, and unlike the MAX, the MAX is its its own airplane. They know that this has this issue, whatever it is, right? Because we don't 100% know yet um, the issue that the MAX has. So they grounded all the MAX. Here, they would have had to ground every 737 because they were only in up to, operation. Like, were they only up to the 300 series at this point? No, they had the 400, 500. So they and would I have had... They had already started even... I'd have to look, but I think they already even started producing the NG series, which were the 6, 7, 8, and 900. So they would have had to ground five series worth of 737s? Because yeah. they didn't know if it would affect... New versus old. Yep. Be, they couldn't figure out what was happening. To Where, be clear, UA-585, the serial number on that bird alone was 22,000. Over 22,200 was the serial number. Mm -hmm. That's how many they would have had to ground at the time of UA-585's manufacture, that airplane. Ugh. 
So at the time that this accident occurred, it's a lot more. So Tens they, and maybe hundreds of thousands of planes. Eventually. And so they decided not to. Probably, a, I wouldn't say a good thing, but it was a good decision made on their part because this had only happened twice in a course of two years? Well, here's four the, years. Four years. And so they couldn't three be years. like... Three. Whatever. Three years. It was over a span of years, unlike the Max, which was over a span of months. And yeah. they also only grounded the Max series. Well, and right. here's the biggest difference between that and what we're talking about. We're talking about older series aircraft. We're talking about airplanes that had already flown for 30 years. The Max is brand new. Yeah. The Max was brand new when this happened, so that's a big issue. If it's a brand new airplane and it's proving to be a recurring issue right away, that needs to be fixed. With old airplanes... Could be old parts, could be misuse, could, could be, be there's bad so many, maintenance, it could be a whole bunch of stuff. So many more factors that go into an airplane that's been flown for 30 years successfully than there is in airplanes that have only been flying for months. So, Emily, do you have any questions? You've been awfully quiet. <laughs> I'm sorry. She's <laughs> absorbing the information. It's totally fine. You normally just listen. You don't have a chance to participate. Well, I mean, not specifically about it, because I feel like you guys explained it pretty well. Okay, well. We try to, <laughs> anyways. I'm sorry, I'll have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. That means we're doing our job, right? I guess. It's a job we're know. barely getting paid for. Support us on Patreon! <laughs> <laughs> Plug. I don't know, this is, yeah, this one was a... It helped that it was similar to the other one, though. Yes, there was a lot of similarities, but still, it's still, like... But it's what different enough that you could be like, because I could see why they wouldn't ground them, even if like not even if nothing else, just based on the fact. Well, that one had mountain turbulence, and this was different, so it could theoretically be a completely different thing. Well, and when two, I mean, they didn't even look at UA five five eighty five initially. It took them a long time to look at yeah, UA585. Yeah, they looked at Lockerbie first. Yeah, they looked well, at Lockerbie first. They I find at... it funny that they're like, let's look at if it was a bomb. Well, if there are witnesses and whatnot who saw the plane go down with no, like... They saw it intact. Yeah, it was intact. So it's like, you, okay, nothing yeah. exploded before it hit the ground. You know it didn't explode if the wreckage is contained... And not spread wide apart. If it were like 12 miles, like Nigeria. Yeah, if it was a bomb, or if it was, you know, a a failure that caused the plane to break up in flight, they would have had to span multiple miles of of wreckage, and here, it's in the same spot. Everything was there. So, it couldn't have been a bomb, or a missile, or an in-flight breakup, because everything was... Together. Together, yeah. yeah. The only thing that wasn't was basically the reason they had to wear hazmat suits. Right. Which yep. I find interesting. Yep. That it's become more and more frequent as... Planes get bigger and bigger. Well, and scientists realize the potential problems with walking through a zone with vaporized humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Diseases yeah. and... I hate to be con- so graphic, and all that and kind of morbid. stuff. It's gross. Um, but that's why it, it had to happen. Yeah. And this... A weird thing about this, I mean, a, a big reason they didn't think about UA-585 even at first, or even for a while, was because, think about it, for them, UA-585, they had done the final report two years earlier, and this wasn't 
all of the same investigators. This included some other investigators. Yep. And, and even technically, a- that case was considered closed. And right, UA two UA five eighty five is considered it was just unconclusive. UA five eighty five was yeah considered closed and inconclusive, but so they didn't even start looking at that for a while till they had ruled out so many other things, and then they went hmm something about this is starting to cause to call back some memories here. And even when you look at the reports, you can see the differences because UA five eighty five is a hundred and sixty page report. US Air four twenty seven was a three hundred and seventy page report with actually. Some parts of it had a totally different structure. Well, and part of that was with UA-585, they had released the initial report with an undetermined cause. They later released a report with the cause, which you will find out in the next episode, next week, haha. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Whereas US Air 427, they did not release a different report first. They, the investigation stalled, but it never ended. Right. So the report we're reading from, we're nitpicking parts because we don't want to give it away. Right. Which is why we haven't said findings and the probable cause and the recommendations. Because it's in the report. But. But something else had to happen before they figured it out. Yeah. So they did find what happened to this. However, it did not happen until next week's episode where we talk about another flight that had this happen. Which is. But. As a teaser, sorry. Everyone, no one died on that flight. Everyone lived. Which is only going to be the second time ever we've covered a flight where, where everybody, everybody lived. lived. <laughs> we yeah. need to get better about that. It's okay. That's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's literally a plane falling out of the air. It's hard to survive in that. There was, um, there was an episode of Air Disasters, and I want to find it. Like, one, a plane fell out of the sky, like, three miles of altitude, and recovered, and everyone lived, and they were they pulled into the airport. It happened twice. They dove twice, yeah. and the pilots recovered. A I know thousand feet above the it's ocean. It's Japan Air, I think. It's an Asian airline. Yeah, I can't remember. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember what season. And they pulled on. into the airport, and the pilots like, I don't know what to say. Like, have a good day. Hope you fly with us again. <laughs> I guess you didn't die. <laughs> Some people might have passed out from the G's, though. Some people did that. Uh, I don't think anyone's pants survived. No. Probably not. So we'll find more flights where people survived, like most everyone survived, or everyone survived. We'll try to stop killing everyone. We'll try. Okay. It's not like you did it. So I think we need to wrap this up, because we're starting to... Tangent. Tangent. So... Tune back next week. For the the final... For the conclusion of conclusion our three-part series. On what happened with the 737 and the Rudder Hardovers. This was, what was it? Episode 14, U.S. Air 427. U.S. Air 427. Hope, we hope you have a great week. Have a, a good week. Great week. Sorry for the cliffhanger. Yeah. They're not sorry. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.